What do you do when life goes bad? Where do you turn? What do you do when the world around you, or even just your own private world, is filled with chaos and trouble and pain and loss and heartache? Where do you turn in those times? Last Sunday, we saw this very thing happening in the book of Joel. You can go ahead and turn to that book. God's people had rebelled against him. God had called them again and again to repent, to return, and they were stiff-necked, they were stubborn, they refused to do so, and God sent um, a plague of locusts on the land, invaded the entire land, and by the time this locust plague had gone through, the entire land had been destroyed, all the crops had been devoured, there was nothing left. And this brought on widespread devastation that acted like a domino effect, and it affected everyone and everything in the land. We looked at, at that last week. We saw that the land suffered, the crops suffered, the, the barns even suffered because they, they had no food to harvest and put into the barns, and so the barns fell into disrepair and were falling down. The animals suffered the people suffered, the priests suffered, the worship suffered, the offerings and sacrifices suffered, and we saw last and most importantly, God himself suffered. His heart grieved over people who refused to return to him and repent. He grieved that he had to bring this judgment upon them. God didn't want this to happen, and I pointed out something very important we must never forget um, God never delights in disciplining his children, but he does it. And the judgments of God are never an end in themselves. The judgments of God are always meant to bring us back to him. And so we saw last week when life is falling apart, when we're overcome by sorrow or loss or loneliness or heartache, what do we do? We turn to the Lord. That's the first thing we saw last week. And that's exactly what God calls the people to do here. And this is what God wants us to do. You know, he's, I, I can't read this story without thinking of the prodigal son. He, he's, God is the father who has let his son make his own choice. The father could have bound the son up and locked him in a room and said, no, no, I'm going to keep an eye on you. I'm going to make sure you stay on the straight and narrow. You can't do that to people. Pastors can't do that to churches. Parents can't do that to children. And the father said, son, if you want, if you want to go and sow your wild oats, go ahead. But we see in that story that Jesus told that every day the father was waiting and longing and hoping and looking out towards the horizon, thinking, I wonder if today is going to be the day when my son comes home. And just that heartache that mounts and grows day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, having a wayward son, the heaviness that that brings. It's no wonder the Bible says that when he looked up that day and saw his son coming, he ran to him. Distinguished men in that culture did not run. 
but God ran to him. And I love it. It says he fell on his neck and kissed him. You know what that means? It's, it, was, it was the buildup of all of this worry for his son. And when he was finally able to embrace his son, his knees buckled. And he just collapsed onto his son. So thrilled to have him back. And he welcomed him back. He didn't judge him. He didn't condemn him. He didn't run down a list of things that his son had done wrong. What did he do? He called the people. He said, kill the fatted calf. Sorry for you vegans, but kill the (laughs) fatted calf. We're going to have a party. Bring a new robe. Put on my son. Put a ring on his finger. Put shoes on his feet. Because this son of mine who was lost has been found. The one who was dead is now alive. That is what God longs for every one of us. And that's what he was trying to get his people to do here in the book of Joel. But how do we do that? What does coming back to God look like? Well, God answers that in Joel chapter 2, verse 12. I'm just doing a quick recap of last week to bring us up to speed. Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. He's saying, tear your heart. I want you to have a broken heart, not just going through the show. I I mentioned to you that in that culture, when someone was experiencing very deep grief, they would go in public and they would tear their clothes. It was a It was almost like a ritual that had become that. And God is saying, I don't care anything about your outward show because it's possible, you see, for someone in that culture to, to, if maybe a friend is suffering loss, maybe they would go out and tear their clothes for everyone to see, oh, look how much they care for their friend. Meanwhile, in their heart, underneath those clothes that they're tearing, they don't really have a heart of compassion at all. It's possible for us to go through the religious motions. Possible for us to drift in and out of here every week. Know all the words to the songs. Raise our hands and worship. And yet God looks at our heart and he says, man, you're a million miles away from me. I heard a pastor ask this years ago. I've never forgotten it. He said, what bothers you more? Coming to church with your hair out of place or coming to church with your heart out of place? God looked at people in the Old Testament and he said, all these things you're doing, you're following the religious rules to the T, except for one thing, your heart is far from me. He says, your worship disgusts me. You're worshiping in vain something we must be very, very careful of. God says, I don't care about your outward show. I want to see your heart turn to me. Throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, God always points to our heart. Always. He says, guard your heart. Keep a watch over your heart because it's out of your heart that all the issues of life flow. If there's evil in your heart, evil things are going to flow out of you. If there's good in your heart, good things are going to flow out of you. It all starts in the core of who we are. So what do we do? We turn to the Lord. 
How do we do it? We do it from the heart. And then the last thing we saw last week was why. Why should we return to the Lord? Look at verse 13 again. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord. Why? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. And we talked about those five things. And we must be careful that our returning to the Lord is not so that we'll get out of trouble or avoid getting into trouble that we know we're about to get into because of decisions we've made or wrong that we've done. And so we hurriedly run to God and go, oh, God, bail me out of this one. And if you bail me out, God, I promise I'll love you. What a cheap, self-centered kind of relationship that is. The reason we should return to him, the, the motivating force that should send us running back to him when we've gone astray or when we're hurting and we're feeling separated from him is the awareness of how much our separation from him grieves him and the awareness of what a good, kind, loving, patient, merciful God he is. It's his love. Well, that's where we sort of ended last week, and I want to pick up there today. So what should we do when we're apart from God? We should return to him. How do we do that? We do that with a broken heart, with a sincere heart. Why do we do it? We do it because he's our father, and he's missing us, and he longs for us to come back to him. And then the next question is, what happens when we do return to God? I really want you to see what Joel says next. This is such a beautiful, revealing picture of the heart of God. If you're away from God this morning, maybe you've turned from him at some point and you know you're not where you're supposed to be. Maybe you're afraid to come back to him because you don't know what will happen. Or if your life feels like it has been eaten up by a plague of locusts, and man, you're just sitting in emptiness and dryness. And you don't know which way to turn. I especially want you to listen to the expressive words of fullness and generosity and kindness that God expresses to his people. Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Remember, these are people who have rebelled against God. God says, if you return to me, then, then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove far from you the northern army, and will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. There's meaning in that that we don't have time to get into. His stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, 
And rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you. The former rain and the latter rain in the first month. Again, there's tremendous meaning in that. The threshing floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. Those are the promises of a generous, gracious, forgiving, loving God who delights in showing goodness to his children. Did you catch it in there? God even cares about the animals. He says, hey, don't worry, animals, beasts of the field. I'm, I'm watching out for you too. Remember in Jonah that we just looked at, the very last phrase in Jonah, God says, Jonah, should I not care about all of these people in the city of Nineveh? There's so many people and much cattle. What a bizarre way to end a book. And yet God is saying, I care about all of my creation. Jesus said, not even a sparrow falls to the ground without your heavenly father knowing about it. Just imagine how good all these things must have sounded to those people who were living in the midst of this dry, dead land. No water, no food, no life. And God comes to them and he, he speaks these words. Imagine how good it must have sounded. I'm going to give you grain. I'm going to give you new wine and oil and fruit and rain. The harvest of wheat is going to come in. I'm going to remove your reproach. I'm going to drive your enemies far from you. And I'm going to cause you to rejoice and be glad again. I imagine those people wondered if they would ever hear those words again. Never mind actually experience those things again. And the only reason they would have all of that life and abundance again is because of the goodness and love and kindness of God. And it makes me think of of all the places or people or things that you and I could run to when we're in the midst of locust-eaten years, why would we ever run to artificial temporary relief? Why would we ever run to that which can only satisfy us for a moment, but then leaves us empty and regretting what we've done? God says, run to me. Run to the place of compassion and mercy and gracious, forgiving love. Run to me. It's in my presence that you'll find forgiveness instead of judgment. It's in my presence that you'll find true, lasting peace instead of just something to numb the pain. It's in my presence that you'll find abundant compassion and kindness And it's only in my presence that you can be restored and made new. Everything else is a band-aid on the problem. God alone is the one who can literally make things new that have been dead and lost. This is the heart of God. These verses we've just read, this is a picture of the heart of God. And that's what he wants for every one of us but we must return to him. But even seeing all the goodness and blessings here in these chapters that we've read so far, 
that still isn't the end of God's goodness. God promises restoration and renewal beyond what he's already said. Now, here's something important. God doesn't just want to restore and bless his people physically, like giving them barns full of food and running water. More than that, God wants to restore his people spiritually. And he says this in verse 28. I'll come back to some verses that we skipped. I want to end with those. Look at Joel 2:28. And it shall come to pass afterward. Afterward. Now God has blessed these people with all these physical things now, all this goodness. And it shall come to pass after all that, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my maidservants, on my men servants and my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And then look at what he says in verse 32. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If that sounds familiar to you, it's because it is. Over in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 2, um, we remember the timeline, maybe Jesus, um, right before he ascended back to heaven, he told his followers to wait, to wait in Jerusalem until the promised Holy Spirit would come. And so we see that they go and they pray for 10 days until the day of Pentecost. And on that day, the Bible says they're together in the upper room, they're praying, and the Holy Spirit descends on them, and they went out and began speaking in the languages of all the people who were visiting Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. I I believe, if memory serves me right, Acts chapter 2 tells us that uh, there were people there from at least 16 different countries and nationalities. And so the Bible says that all these people visiting from around the world heard the message of the gospel, each in their own language. And it says not only were they amazed by this, but some also mocked the disciples and said, these men are clearly drunk. I don't know where you get that kind of logic. I don't know, I don't know how you're drunk if you can speak a foreign language perfectly that you've never spoken before. But that's what they concluded. And so Peter addresses this. And look with me at, in Acts chapter 2, verse 16. Peter stands up now and he says, he, he kind of gathers the crowd in and says, no, 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 listen, you've got this wrong. He says, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Okay, now all these disciples speaking in these different languages that they don't know. This is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And then starting in verse 17, he begins to quote what we just read in Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and so on. And so what we see happening here is that 800, 850 years before Peter stands and says this, God has made a promise of something he's going to do. And all that time has gone by. And now we see God keeping his word, God keeping his promise of what he said he will do. And I think there should be some comfort in that. You know, we, uh, we're impatient people. We're the microwave generation. We, uh, we, we push a button and we, we get frustrated if it's not done in 15 seconds. 
We find ourselves standing there yelling at the microwave. Come on! We're impatient people. Oh, God's on a whole different time schedule than we are. 800 plus years. God kind of kept this promise in his back pocket, if you will. Oh, people had given up long before, I guess. But Peter, he sees this and light goes on. He says, oh, this is what we've read in the old scrolls. This is what God promised all those years ago. It's now being fulfilled. Well, Joel, by the way, I'm not going to take time to get into this today, but you know, Joel talks about the day of the Lord a lot. I mentioned that last week uh, five times in this little book. He mentions the day of the Lord. It's mentioned by tons of other prophets. Uh, there's a lot of debate on what that means. There's a lot of debate about the timing of what Joel said here. Um, people often get up in arms about their viewpoint on this. We've had people come here who've you know, things like this have been the most important issue in life to them. I had one lady, one time, the very first Sunday she came, the very first time I met her, the very first thing she said to me was, what is your view on the end times? And I literally, I literally went, Ugh. And then I went, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that. But it's like, seriously, we, you know what? That's just not our focus. Is it important? Of course it is. Do we believe in and long for the coming of Christ? Of course we do. But I'm not going to fight with people over whether when Joel says the day of the Lord, if he's referring specifically and only to the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, or if he's referring to the end times. Some people say what Joel is talking about here uh, only refers to after the rapture of the church, uh, the beginning of the Great Tribulation. That's what Joel's referring to. I'm like, dude, does it really matter? None of us has the answers on all of this. None of us do. Sandy and I were invited one time to come and meet with a family who had been visiting here, and they were thinking of joining. And uh, we didn't know we had, what we'd walked into. <clears throat> For three hours, we were grilled. Three hours. We were grilled on one doctrinal question after another. Three hours. Don't tell me I'm not a patient man. (laughs) You know, and it was wanting to fight and argue over dispensationalism and all. And it's just like, hey, you know, bro, what? There's, There's over 400 churches in Greenville. I'll be glad to help you find one. So I don't have the answers to all the timing of this in Joel. Frankly, I don't care. I'd rather focus on what we do know. And if God chooses to reveal some of that other stuff to me, wonderful. If he doesn't, I trust him anyway. doesn't matter. Joel goes on in chapter 3 to describe a day when God is going to gather all the nations together. He's going to judge all the nations. And those who, it says, have mistreated his people... It is not going to go well for them. God was clearly saying through Joel that worse times were coming, that wars were going to continue. Look at an example in Joel chapter 3, verse 9, 9 and 10. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. 
Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Now, what we see when we look at the world around us still today is violence and bloodshed and hatred and division and war. And the bad news is that is going to continue until Christ returns and sets up his final kingdom. That is going to continue. The United Nations is not going to bring peace to this world. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is not going to bring peace to this world through her Green New Deal. Not going to happen. Klaus Schwab is not going to bring peace to this world by trying to get us all to eat bugs. Have you seen the commercials? Who's the Australian actress? Nicole Kidman. Oh, yeah, she has a wonderful commercial, Eating Bugs, on TV, saying, basically, this is where we're all headed. You'll have nothing and you'll be happy. That's their slogan. This is what they're planning for us, by the way. We need to be alert and pay attention to what's going on. So many people don't have a clue what's being worked on behind the scenes. None of those people are going to bring peace to this world. As long as we're alive, there's going to be war and bloodshed and violence and hatred. And you go, why? Why is that happening? Listen, it's happening because for right now, Man has been given free reign to live however he pleases. And, and what has he chosen to do that? He's chosen to run wild in sin. And he's living as though he's got forever. He's thumbing his nose at God. And he's acting as though he's never going to have to give an account to God. By the way, did you know that was one of the driving motivations for cooking up this ridiculous scheme of evolution? Because what evolution does is it suddenly frees people up. It goes, I'm not accountable to anybody. That's one of the greatest lies that Satan ever put in this world was the theory of evolution. It gets God out of the picture. It says, I can live however I want to. But until that final day of the Lord when he establishes peace, when he sets up his throne forever, you and I are going to live in a world that beats their plowshares into swords and what that means simply is uh, things are so bad that people are taking useful everyday items and they're turning them into weapons of war. We saw this in World War II when the U.S. made the decision to get involved in the war. <clears throat> they started sending thousands of troops and uh, ammunition and equipment overseas and the factories producing all this stuff ran out of raw materials. And so they got the American people, they called on them to ration certain things and to turn them in so that they could take the metals and the whatever that people had and turn them into weapons of war. That's going to continue. And by the way, Isaiah says in, I don't have the verse, I think it's um, Isaiah 2 maybe, uh, Isaiah says that a day is coming when the opposite is going to take place. There'll be a time coming when men will beat their swords into plowshares. It's going to go the other way. But until then, the world is going to continue as it is. And maybe you say, boy, that, that all sounds uh, pretty hopeless, Phil. Do we have anything to look forward to? Well, I would say, yes, we do. Right now, man thinks he's king of the hill. 
He thinks he's big stuff. He thinks he's running the show. But God will have the last word. Oh, I love this in Joel. Let me just give you a a glimpse of this. Joel chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Now amidst all all the clamor of war and man's plans to, to run things how he wants to, and he's having his say, look at this, verse 16. The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no aliens shall ever pass through her again. And so no, no foreign armies are, are going to come and invade Jerusalem again once this clock begins ticking. And you and I should take great hope in that. We should find comfort and peace, and we should find certainty and security in this, knowing that once man has had his say, when it's all over, as I've told you before, God is going to have the last word. He's going to right every wrong. You understand? All those little things that are still in the back of your mind, the times you've been cut short on a deal, when you did the right thing and you came out on the losing end, that person who destroyed that relationship, all the wrongs that have been done, God is going to set them right in the end. He goes further than that, though. And I love these verses. I I saved these verses for last today because... They really are the pinnacle of everything that Joel has written. Joel 2, 25. God says, So I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. The crawling locust, the consuming locust, the chewing locust. My great army, which I sent among you. Yep, there it is. People say, oh, God didn't send this judgment on the people. Yeah, I'm afraid he did. Verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. The years the locusts have eaten is widely known, even today, as hard years, rough years, years filled with trouble, years of suffering and loss and pain. And I must tell you that Locust years will come into every life sooner or later. But I want us to be careful not to miss what we've already seen today. That even in those years, the promises of God are still abundant. We must not miss that. We've got all kinds of problems in this world, but folks, none of those things can change the promises of God. 
No matter how big they are, no matter how bad they look or threatening, none of those things can change the promises of God. You know, the more I see the skies darkening in in the world, the more I turn to the verse in Psalm 37, 25. I've been young and now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. God will care for those who put their trust in him. Did you see uh, in verse 21, Joel 2, all of the times that God said that he will care for people in the midst of all this trouble? Joel 2, 21, he said, fear not. Verse 22, do not be afraid. Verse 23, be glad and rejoice, and so on. How in the world can God's word be so positive when such negative things are happening. It's because God knows the outcome of all this. He knows how this turns out. Have you ever watched a movie for the second time with someone who hasn't seen it? Maybe it's a scary movie, and you're, uh, the, the person beside you is all tensed up at the, at the, uh, the pivotal point in the movie, and they're worried about The hero of the movie, he's about to die. He's about to be killed. He's not going to make it. And you're sitting there eating your popcorn, relaxed, because you've already seen the end of the movie. You know he makes it. You know he's fine. So you have no need to worry. How can God be so positive? How can he speak such positive promises to his people who are living in the midst of such hard, dreadful times? It's because God's seen the end of the movie. He knows how this turns out. You know, you and I have a hard time seeing past the the troubles that surround us in the immediate moment. Man, I got to get this problem fixed. I got to get this hassle off my back. But God knows how it all turns out in the end. And that's why he can say to us, you don't need to worry. You don't need to fear. I don't know where all of you are this morning, but I do know this. There are probably people here who have your own swarm of locusts that are bringing suffering and trouble into your life right now. Maybe, maybe it feels like hope is a million miles away and restoration, restoration doesn't even seem possible. The plague of locusts that Joel described here swept over that land like a dark cloud. And man, when it was done, they had destroyed everything in their path. Everything green had now turned brown and dead. The people were left desolate and desperate. They saw no hope. They couldn't imagine that things would ever get better. But what they were about to learn is something that we all need to learn. And it's this last phrase that, I want to leave with you. God is still good when things are bad. God is still good when things are bad. And he can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. You understand, we can't do that. As I said last week, there are some people who are really good at restoring old, broken, forgotten things. You can restore an old car, an old motorcycle, Uh, an old house, an old painting. 
We can restore all kinds of physical things, but you and I can't restore lost years. You can't restore lost time. When time is gone, it's gone forever. But God is doing a miraculous thing here. He says, I can restore those years. Those years that have been lost, those years that seem wasted and gone, I can restore them. I can make up for that lost time and even go beyond that and give you more than you've lost. Remember Job. Job lost everything. And for the longest time, Job must have thought, boy, oh boy, my life is over. It can't get any worse. It's just never going to turn around. And when it was all done, God restored him and gave him 10 times what he had before. God is able to do that. Say, Phil, I... I just have to tell you, you don't know how badly that, hurt, that person hurt me years ago. God can restore the years the locusts have eaten. You say, Phil, my, my children have turned away from God, and they're far from him. God can restore the years the locusts have eaten. You go, Phil, I've done some terrible things in my life. God could never make up for that. God could never use me now. Hey, God can restore the years the locusts have eaten. Nikki Cruz was born into a family of 18 children in South America to Satan-worshipping parents. He grew up surrounded by evil and darkness and witnessed things as a child that were beyond horrific. It really tore him to pieces mentally and emotionally. And when he was a young boy, he was sent to America to live with his uncle, but he chose not to stay with his uncle. Instead, he was so filled with rage and rebellion and anger at the things that he had seen and the way he had been treated that he hit the streets and he lived on the streets. And it wasn't long before he joined a gang called the Mau Mau's, And that was a name taken from a bloodthirsty African tribe. And within three months, Nikki was the president of that gang. And he and the gang roamed the streets of New York City, and they were feared by everyone. Nikki was known to be a violent, heartless man. He had no mercy for anyone. Everyone who came across his path ran the likelihood of being beaten to a pulp. No one could get through to Nicky until one day he met a tall, skinny little preacher named David Wilkerson who was out on the streets of New York preaching the gospel. Nicky hated this man from day one. He would spit on him. He would threaten him. He beat him up. And David Wilkerson kept coming back and showing unrelenting love to Nikki, something Nikki had never known before. He didn't know what to do with this. He didn't know how to handle love that wouldn't quit. He didn't know how to handle love that loved him for who he was, despite all his failures. David Wilkerson kept on and kept on and kept on showing love to Nikki. And one day, Nikki bowed and gave his life to Christ. And instead of seeing those years behind him as wasted, lost years, he said, God, I want to spend the rest of my life reaching those very people that I used to be. 
Nikki is 83 years old now, and he's still preaching the gospel. God can restore the years the locusts have eaten. Everywhere you turn, people are filled with remorse and regret. They live every day thinking things like, if only I hadn't done that. If only I had made a different decision all those years ago. My heart will never be whole again. I've wasted so much time living for the wrong things. It's too late for me now. The time has passed. I want you to know there's nobody who is beyond God's forgiveness and mercy and restoration. Whatever swarm of locusts may be devouring your joy today, I want to say to you, return to God. You will find grace and mercy and forgiveness and restoration. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you are a long-suffering, patient God. In the times of life that either we've run from you or the circumstances of life have driven us from you, you've always been there waiting, longing, looking, calling us to come home. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today, if there's anyone watching online or listening to this even months or years from now who is in that position, I pray, Lord, that they would get up from where they are just as the prodigal son did and they would turn and they would come back to you. I thank you that you're a God who doesn't just patch things up, but you can restore and make new things that have been broken and destroyed. So we ask that for each of us in each of our lives today, Lord, if there's any area of desolation, if there's any area that we're just, we find ourselves sitting in all the time, worrying or filled with fear or filled with anger or regret, whatever it may be, Lord, um, I pray that you would bring restoration there. Show what a wondrous God you are. And do a great thing in all of our lives for your sake, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart I want to see